listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm Jamie Howison. Today I want to offer a few words on the upcoming Canadian federal election. I've just come home from casting my advance ballot. Now our Canadian listeners, of course, won't be surprised that we are in election season. We've just gone through the televised leaders' debates in both French and English. And it's about all you hear on the news, really, as the feature story. Listeners south of the border in the United States may not be even aware, depending on how much coverage we get in the American media. And listeners from further afield in places like Australia, it's probably even more remote. And so you might be tempted just to Uh, skip this podcast. It has nothing to do with me, but it does. Anybody who lives in a country where we are fortunate to have the privilege and responsibility to cast a vote, well, this might be something you want to think about. So, in we go. I was raised in a family in which it was emphasized that voting was both a privilege and a responsibility. It's part of being a good citizen of your country, of your province, of your city. To exercise that vote was important. But I don't really remember my mom and dad talking about it as having any connection to our faith. And our faith in my family was very, very important. I suspect it did inform the way they voted, but there was a little bit of a separation. And of course, the separation is not uncommon. I have several times heard people cite Jesus saying, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's, and saying, See, keep your politics and religion completely separate. And yet, is that even really possible? I was intrigued last week as I was reading Karen Armstrong's book, The Lost Art of Scripture, to come across some material on John Milton, the poet best known for his work, Paradise Lost. Milton was not only engaged in life as a poet, a writer, a theological thinker, but also, it turns out, as a political one. And so Armstrong comments, Milton refused to accept both Martin Luther's reliance on faith alone to the detriment of good works, and Luther's insistence that true Christians should not involve themselves in political matters. We were certainly justified by faith, Milton argued, quote, but by a living faith, not a dead one. Faith, Milton believed, quote, has its own works, and the greatest of these was politics. Well, I had to stop when I read that. I had no idea that Milton had such convictions. And then Armstrong continued to flesh that out. She writes, Milton was deeply involved in the political turmoil of his day. After the English Civil War, 1642-49, to 49, which resulted in the execution of King Charles I and the creation of a short-lived Puritan Republic, Milton served in Oliver Cromwell's government and published essays on political theory. And he was very clear that his political engagement was 
one of the good works of his faith convictions. Now, John Milton ended up in a different political space than I might have. I'm not a big fan of Cromwell's government, which was very narrow and rigid, and not so good to the Anglican tradition in which I stand. But that doesn't change my respect for Milton to engage life in the political realm as an outgrowing of his faith. Another example, of course, from the English church is William Wilberforce, a conservative member of parliament in the House of Commons. He entered the Commons in 1780. He was a wealthy man, not a whole lot of direction beyond a political career, but he had a revolutionary awakening of his faith a few years later, became active in the evangelical wing of the Church of England, and in this had a conversion of heart around how his beliefs should impact his politics. And so for the next 40 years, he struggled, politicked, petitioned, and worked for the abolition of the slave trade of England's involvement in the international slave trade, which was enslaving countless Africans right across the empire and throughout Europe, South America, Central America, the United States, and yes, Canada too. Forty years he labored to have the bill finally passed, which would abolish that slave trade, along the way making friends with John Newton, the penitent former slave trader and author of the hymn Amazing Grace. And as he grew close to death, he never gave up. And his whole work was an outgrowing of his faith. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, unto God what is God's. Well, what would Wilberforce or Milton have said to that? How would Tommy Douglas in the 20th century in Canada Baptist minister turned politician, never lost sight of his faith, and considered the father of our modern public health system, or any number of political figures, members of parliament, or of their provincial legislature, or of city councils across the country, who see their involvement in the political life as not being detached from their foundational ethics, their beliefs, their core commitments, their social engagement in the political world. And don't you want that? Don't you want somebody who goes to Parliament as a person of faith to actually then vote according to that ethics and conscience? The thing is, of course, there are people of faith who find themselves drawn into politics with very different views. Is that a bad thing? Well, maybe not. Maybe not. Because if they're going in authentically, then they're bringing the fullness of who they are and what they believe to the floor of the House of Commons or whatever political floor they happen to be standing upon. What about us as voters? I know people in St. Benedict's Table who are voting in very different ways. And I suspect that's true of just about every congregation across the country. Some will find themselves drawn to the Greens or the New Democrats. Some will find themselves drawn to the Liberals. 
to the conservatives or one of the other smaller parties. And it's not like they've checked their faith at the door, but rather, so often anyway, they believe that there's something in those parties that connects foundationally to their core religious beliefs. Ha. Huh. Well, it was almost a decade ago that we at St. Benedict's Table invited the fairly recently retired politician, Bill Blakey, to address us on this question of faith and politics. Bill is an ordained minister of the United Church of Canada. He served as member of the Canadian Parliament for the New Democrats from 1979 to 2008, and then as a member of the Legislative Assembly of Manitoba from 2009 to 2011. He had just published a memoir, and we thought it was a good time to ask him about the connections he was making. At one point in his presentation, we went to question and answer. And Jim Cornelius, a member of our community and at the time the executive director of the Canadian Food Grains Bank, asked a question about the diversity of views that are held by people of faith in the world of politics. Let you listen to Jim's question and Bill's answer. You referred earlier to the need for a conversation within the Christian community yeah. about so faith and politics. And, and I'm wanting to get a sense of where you think there's space for the religious right and the religious left to have a conversation. And would that be a different, could that be a different conversation and a helpful conversation um, than just the debate between the left and the right more generally? And how would, how would you imagine that type of conversation? Well, I would imagine it as a debate between, between uh, Christians who could actually argue with each other as Christians and say, well, where do you, you know, where, show me. <laughs> where does that come from? You know, why, where does the preoccupation with this issue come from when, you know, when uh, there's several hundred more occasions in, the, in Scripture where, where uh, questions of uh, money and uh, the poor and uh, are mentioned. You know, why isn't that, you know, uh, I mean, I'd like to have that debate, and I do try to have that debate with other Christians. I don't expect to have that in the public square, but I could have it with other, uh, with other people who claim the same sources of authority. So I think that debate has to happen within the, within the Christian community itself. Uh, there are some, uh, but there's not as many as there should be. And, uh, I mean, I try to create them, and I get invited, when I get invited uh, to, to, uh, to talk like this in venues where I know, um, uh, you know, there are people from, uh, or, or are going to be an audience primarily, uh, you know, to, I hate using this sort of simplistic terms, but, you know, on the, the, the Christian right or whatever, I'm, I'm always eager to go and, and uh, have that conversation. And, frankly, I find that there is more openness uh, to that kind of discussion than people would think. Because I think one of the things we need to do within the Christian community is to kind of de-demonize each other. There is a, a real tendency to think that, you know, well, if they're from that group, they got certain kind of political or theological horns. You know, I mean, we don't, right? And they do the same. They do the same, you know. Oh, he's the United Church minister. We, you know, like. And so what I try to do, and I think more people should do it, is to try and break down those stereotypes. And, and we might find that we actually agree about things. We're not, I don't want to sound uh, Pollyannish about this. There are lots of things that aren't going to go away uh, 
easy and may never go away. But on the other hand, try to find uh, some of the things that would uh, either lead to common action or lead to an environment in which there's less of that kind of uh, uh, stereotyping, demonizing, call it what you like. Because I think it's hard for the Christian community to be taken as seriously as it would like to be in the public square if we're uh, we, if we can't get along with each other. More than anything, what Bill Blakey offers is a challenge to actually listen to one another. As people of faith who may find themselves in very different political spaces, not to just sling mud or dismiss the other as being somehow less, but instead to actually listen to one another and find those connecting points so that those outside of the church might see something different, might see a a shared sense of the need to attend to the common good. A couple of weeks ago in a sermon, I was preaching on the epistle of James, and James challenging people to have their faith actually have wheels on it. Faith without works is dead, so live your faith, enact your faith, act accordingly. And I listed off a whole list of examples of how we might do that. And I slipped in, almost by accident, a phrase that said, vote your conscience, not your bank account. Which might have been a little abrupt, but there's truth in it. Vote your conscience, and as Christians of conscience, that means paying attention to the common good. Not just what's good for me, but what's good for my neighbor, all of my neighbors, and for us together. Now, anyone listening might come to different conclusions than I do when I cast my ballot this afternoon, and that's just fine. I would encourage you, though, to go and vote. It is a responsibility and a right. And, as I think Milton would say, one of the good works that should flow from faith. When you go to cast that ballot, think carefully. What's good for us? What's good for my neighborhood? What will this particular candidate bring that maybe the others won't? What will this platform offer that's going to be so important to the good of the whole society in which we live and have the freedom to exercise our faith? What's the common good? And then, well... Hold your head up when you cast that ballot and know that you participated. And I know sometimes people get discouraged. What's the point? What's the point? Nothing changes. They're all the same, except for change does happen. It really does. And right now, when we live in a time of such divided politics, such divided opinions, with so much tension in our society, with factions coming up and and making their voice known, all the more important that we don't back away, but rather keep engaged, involved, voting, speaking to our members of parliament, making our concerns known, writing those letters, and they make a difference, and then listening to the one who holds the other opinion. Really, truly listening. And you know, maybe some people who are listening to this might even feel themselves called to a vocation in the world of politics, either as a candidate or as somebody 
working on the sidelines, helping to form and shape policy, helping to open up ways of thinking. If that catches your imagination, maybe even the day you vote, well, we can have a conversation. This has been a special election season podcast from St. Benedict's Table. We won't know how it all turns out until September 20th when the ballots are all finally cast. But I do really encourage you to think carefully about your engagement in this election as a person of faith. I'm Jamie Howison. Thanks for listening.